Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. You meet Him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. He ends with two questions. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? You can be seated. As we finish up a series, and especially a series so challenging, hopefully motivating, but definitely challenging over these last nine weeks or so, eight weeks, um, I don't want to end subtly. I'm not gifted at subtle. That's just not my gift. And that's fine if you are, I'm not. And so I'm just going to be, Lord, bless me today to speak with the boldness of a prophet, not only to a church and individuals in that church and those watching online, but I think even more so beyond these walls to, to a generation that needs more prophets. We need more uh, of the jab of God's Word in a day where there seems to be uh, a desire for just smooth on the soothing cream, preacher. Put on the soothing cream. And I say to myself sometimes, there's nothing to soothe. There, 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 there is no piercing that's coming to us on a regular basis. And so when I think of Isaiah 64 and so much in the previous 63 chapters was said, but by the time we get to chapter 64, what you've got is a group of people with whom the chickens have come home to roost. They were warned, turn from your sin, turn from your sin, turn from your sin. And they pulled away the shoulder and they covered up their ears and they said, what sin? What sin? We're still, we're still honoring the, the calendar. We're still giving the sacrifices. We're, we're still coming up to the temple. What sin are you talking about? And they would not hear the prophets, and they would not hear the voice of the Lord. And so eventually Babylon comes down, and, and Jerusalem is destroyed, and the temple is torn down. 
And now the people are on the backside of their sin, and that's where all things always get clear, is it not? We clearly see our sin after the chastisement comes, after the penalty arrives. And so they're questioning and they're saying, in essence, God, we still need you to be God. We know we haven't been who we've supposed to, we, we were supposed to have been. We know we haven't been faithful children, but we are, we are wondering, will you still be the good, good father? We know that we're clay marred on the wheel, but we're wondering if the potter's hands will reform us and refashion us again. And so when we get to Isaiah chapter number 64, there's some thresholds that have to be crossed. And because this is not a history lesson today, and because I'm not giving you uh, the history of Israel in an ancient time, but I'm talking to you and not myself in this generation, I'm talking about now, I hope you will hear with the ear of faith. I'm speaking at a larger extent to, into a nation United States of America that indeed once had seasons mightily blessed of God. And I think any objective person would say in the last 50 years we have taken those blessings for granted and because we've taken them for granted they're disappearing. The things that we have taken for granted have been priceless as they've come from the hand of God and we have said no thank you. We don't mind taking your blessings but if it has to be tied to your authority no thank you. And so I'm calling all of us to consider our ways this morning. Let's begin with what I'm going to call the threshold of surrendered desire this morning. First of all, there was expressed in verse number one a strong desire for God's presence. And some of you are living with this right now. This strong desire for God's presence. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. The, the wording is giving expression to somebody or to a group of people, one voice covering so many people saying, Lord, we want you nearer. We want you visible. We want you moving. Lord, it feels like that there is a ceiling above us, a canopy above us. Lord, that canopy, that great immeasurable distance of the heavens, we want you to tear through it like a, a curtain, rip through the canopy, and Lord, we cannot come to you, but you can come to us, rend the heavens, and come down and move in our midst. The expression is given so that the mountains might quake at your presence. I love this because it makes me feel not like a, the moron. What are you talking about, Jeff? Do, those of you that are hungry and thirsty and passionate for more of God, do you ever feel like a moron? When you look around and everybody else is coasting and everybody, not everybody else, but the majority are coasting and cool and everything's great and everything's wonderful. And then they're living off the after fumes of last decade's blessing or even last week or year. And yet in churning in your heart you're saying there's got to be more. I want more of him. I've tasted and seen that he's good and I, I love the taste and I want more of the taste and more of his presence and more of his power and more of his wisdom and more of what you're doing Lord. I want you to move. Here we have words that are giving expression to that. Lord, I don't want to just read about you in your precious word. That's good. But I'll risk it. It's not enough. If all that God wanted to do was to give us a book, he would have stitched one up, written it, handed it to Adam in the garden, and said, I'll see you when you get to heaven. That's not what he did. What did he do? He came and walked with Adam. He came and walked with Enoch. He came and walked with Abraham. He came and met with Moses. 
The, the theophanies in the Old Testament where God makes manifestations and appearance remind us over and over again, not only the physical presence of God in those instances, but there were other times where He wasn't visible, but He did speak. He intervened in the lives of men. And, and Isaiah's words here remind us, Lord, we don't want to simply rest in only what You've done. We know You're doing something now. Bring it down, O oh Lord. Verse 2, this wasn't being done in a vacuum. Here's the context. It's the jealous desire for God's name. Lord, we want to see the mountains quake at your presence like when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence. Remember Israel is, this is being spoken in a context of Israel now becoming captive. The southern kingdom captive to the Babylonians. They're reaping what they sowed. God humbled them by using a pagan nation to come down and to smite them. And yet Israel is so rested in the covenant with God, they know that God is not going to let the, the enemies of Israel continually have the upper hand. And so in this eked out prayer and brokenness and contrition when they know they failed, they don't appeal to what they deserve, they appeal to the glory of God. And they say, Lord, we want your name to be manifested and reverenced all the way to the ends of the earth. Lord, we know who you are. We didn't act accordingly, but Lord, in our brokenness we seek you. And we say, not only show yourself to us, but show yourself to those that defy you. Let your adversaries know your name, and let the nations tremble at your presence. I've been thinking a lot about the second coming lately. I'm not an alarmist, but man, what I see going on in the world today um, makes me very confident. You don't have to agree with me. You feel free to disagree with me. Makes me personally very confident that the second coming will occur in my lifetime. I, I see the convergence of international events. The, the destruction of things as they are, and surmounting problems that will not be answered except for a system of globalization at the top of which there will be one individual who will be ruling through other individuals, and that is setting up the stage for the end time events as they're prophesied in both Old and New Testament. And so when I'm looking at these things occurring, I'm saying to myself, Lord, in the end, your name and your glory will fill the earth. All of the nations will tremble. Every eye will behold the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. And though, Lord, the church is not today who she should be or even could be, I will say this, we have not lost our hunger for your glory. Lord, we have a desire for your name to be magnified. So it was in Isaiah's day. Verses 3 and 4, the penetrating desire for God's power. I like this. Lord, show yourself in the same way that you did when you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. Verse 4, from of old nobody's heard or perceived by the ear or ever seen a God besides you, you who acts for those who wait for him. This is where it becomes personal and interactive. One of the things that uh, I love about our children's pastor, and also our youth pastors, is in, I mean, just really from, from the nursery on up, we are creating a culture in the lives of our children where they expect God to move. That he's not trapped on the, you know, flannel graph from 1985. <laughs> you know, we, we serve a three-dimensional God. And, and an active God, and, and a God who didn't qu quit moving, you know, somewhere in the past. We should expect His power. See, we call on His presence, but sometimes we don't think through what that means. 
Lord, come, bring your presence. Well, let me tell you something. Think about it as you pray it. Because anytime God showed up on the pages of Scripture, it made a mess out of man's systems. You know, we, we sing about it, we clap, and come on, Lord, come on. Yeah, we're singing. We're, just, we're wanting God to move and everything. What are you going to do when He starts moving? What are you going to do? Now, I'm going to tell you, it's been my experience when God starts moving, some people run for the hills. They say, we didn't know He was going to do that. Even to the extent they say, I bet that not, that's not God. But when He comes, He's not just coming to meander and saunter about. He comes with power. You see here Isaiah is referencing a, a historical period, and, and he just kind of sums it up with an easy phrase that encompasses so much. He said, you did awesome things that we weren't looking for. In other words, God had stuff that He was doing that no eye could conceive, no mind could conceive. There was no precedent. There was no template. God gets to be God, and when God moves, and He moves in power, He does things that are unprecedented. Maybe Isaiah was referring to the ten plagues that delivered the people out of Egypt. Maybe after those ten plagues, maybe it was the splitting of the Red Sea, which all of the nations had heard about in the fame of the God of the Hebrews. Maybe it was the thunder. As a matter of fact, it was talking, at least in part, about the thunderous presence of God and the power of God at Sinai when the Decalogue was given and the mountain shook and God said, don't even let the people touch the foot of the mountain. Don't let the livestock touch the foot of the mountain. When my presence and power comes, if you approach irreverently, there is a price to be paid. Maybe it was the miraculous provision of manna in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Maybe Isaiah was referring to the awesome deed of the walls of Jericho falling down when it was time to conquer Canaan land. Or maybe it was dead giants like Goliath. I mean, the list historically could have been so long, but Isaiah just sums it up on behalf of the people and says, you're a God who does awesome deeds, and you do it especially for those who are made righteous and know how to wait on you. I, I will say that um, impatience interrupts a lot of the presence and power of God because we don't know how to wait on them. Very much I'm preaching through the life of Samuel on Wednesday nights. You should come this Wednesday, by the way, if uh, you don't attend the men's Bible study and the separate one led by Pat Mannernot for the women uh, on The Forgotten God, a wonderful book. I really encourage you to come on Wednesday nights. I'll be in here teaching and continuing on the life of Samuel. And one of the things that got King Saul in trouble with God was the fact that King Saul didn't know how to wait on God. King Saul got impatient, the people got impatient, and as a leader, Saul felt the pressure to make something happen, so he disobeyed God. We do that a lot. But if we'll wait on the Lord, He will come through, and He will do things that are infinitely better than anything we could have manufactured because we got impatient. I want God's power. I want as much of it as He wants to give, and I don't apologize for saying so. I don't want it to keep it, I want it to use it. I want it to be poured out, not for me primarily, but through me, because I want it to affect this world and this generation that I live in. And if I can be so bold as a Christian, you ought to want the exact same thing. You ought to want the power of God. Don't leave it up to the pastor or the evangelist or the missionary or the conference guru or the anointed worship leader and all of the stage presence. Most of the power of God does not occur on a stage on a Sunday. We need it Monday at work. We need it Tuesday in our schools. We need it Wednesday on the ball field. We need it Thursday in the business meeting. We need it Friday night when all of our friends are going clubbing and we're saying, I can't go out and waste my life for something like that. The power of God to transform us from the inside.
And then moving outward, it transforms our own life, but it, it comes through us, and it will shake the mountain of a generation that stands so impressive and tall. You let God move through one person that knows how to wait on Him. God will say, through you, I will shake the mountains of the earth. He's done it before. Verse 5, moving from burning mountains to something more akin to a relational embrace, here's another desire, the relational desire for God's affirmation. Look at verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. We're talking about surrender. I'm getting to that, that access point here in a moment. But when you read, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, when you read in verse 5, you meet the one who joyfully works righteousness. It is a, a, a term that indicates proximity or nearness. It means this, Lord, you encounter the person who is working in joyful righteousness. You are pressing near to that person. It can even mean reaching out to touch. Now listen, don't let your Bible speak over your head all the time. Take the Scriptures for what they're saying. God is saying here in His Word, this is the inspired Word, that God reaches out to make contact with the one who will live and work in joyful righteousness. And then so often we're longing for presence, we're longing for intimacy, we're longing for encountering God, and, and we feel as if He's out there some way. I'm going to tell you, if you will make yourself small and contrite and broken in heart and low in spirit, and you will say to the Lord, Lord, let, me, let my joy be your strength, Lord, let my joy come from you. Lord, I, I want to live in righteousness, I want to live in obedience, I want to live with an open heart before you. God, you will find, will be reaching out in nearness, and nearness touch you. You will sense him in ways that the casual Christian may never sense. There is something, and I don't understand it, and I can't give you a singular verse to, to just kind of capsulize it, but I know it. I know it by the, the tenor of Scripture, and I know it by personal experience, that there, there is something in the heart of God when he sees one of his justified ones, one of his saved ones, one of his righteous ones, who will patiently wait on the moment, but in the waiting, not twiddling her thumbs waiting, not, not shuffling his feet waiting, but pressing into God and saying, you're my joy as I wait. You're my joy as I pray. You're my joy as I seek to still myself and wean myself from matters that are too great for me. I wait on you, Lord. The Lord, you will find, will begin to extend an arm of omnipotence to touch that person. That's what we want, friends, but it only comes through surrender. I, I want to be as hopeful and motivating as I can, today, can be today, but I will not lie to you. Apart from surrender, you and I will never rise above an average experience with God. And given the consideration of what was given on the cross for me, an average experience with God is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. The extent of the sacrifice of Jesus and all so many people are living with is, yeah, I get to go to heaven when I die. Did you know that that was not the primary message of Jesus? Even though it's the primary message of most 21st century evangelicals, believe on Jesus, you'll go to heaven when you die. Jesus actually said, I want you to pray. You, you asked me to teach you to pray, disciples, here's what you pray. Pray that the kingdom of the Father comes here. Not, not that we go there, 
That the kingdom of the Father comes here now. Not that we leave here when we die and go there then, but that the kingdom comes now. That's what Jesus said to pray. But friends, it won't come through apart from surrender. Now, let's go further down. That threshold of surrendered desire, that means when he becomes in just nothing satisfies apart from him. To the threshold of surrendered confession, here is where it gets gritty. Oh, man. This is where we're going to feel the rub. Verses 5 at the end of it, down through 6 and 7. <laughs> Here's some uncomfortable truth. We have nothing with which to bargain. When it comes to confession, we, you and I, we have nothing with which to bargain. Look at the honest statement in verse 5. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. And in our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? Wow. I don't know how we're approaching confession in these days, but I just want to encourage all of us. When you've done something wrong, make it right with God and then go and make it right with people. And don't hedge on your confession. Don't justify your confession. Don't excuse your confession. Don't say, yeah, but... Nah. Take those two words, put them in a campfire, put some butane on it, kerosene on it, and, and, and let it be burned up. Yeah, I know I did wrong, but eh, that's an illegal prayer. <laughs> that is not a confession. When you're truly smitten about your culpability before a holy God, you won't even be thinking about what other people did wrong. And, and when we live in a posture of contrition and confession, we not only want to keep it right with God, we don't even want to play that yeah, but game with people. It's amazing to me how when we make mistakes and we sin, we can automatically and, and just kind of hold up a mirror and show the other person what they did wrong and never deal with what we've done wrong. And a confession, one that's acceptable to God, is full and honest. There's, there, listen, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll give you this. Great and satisfying blessing awaits all of us on the other side of an honest and full confession. Great blessing awaits, satisfying, and great blessing awaits all of us on the other side of an honest and full confession where you're blaming nobody, you're not, um, you're not putting an addendum to your confession, you're just looking at yourself standing before a holy God, and whom you trust, by the way. I mean, if there's anybody you can confess openly to, it's the merciful one. Say, Lord, it was me. I'm the man. I'm the woman. I did it. And Lord, I don't want to live like this anymore. I, I like the fact that the Scriptures are honest enough to describe God as angry. Don't, don't be offended at that. I don't think He's always angry. I don't think He ever loses His temper. But let's just be honest. God gets angry or is angry about some things. And I can spend my life pointing out all the stuff in your life that he might be angry at. Or if I'm wise, I'll just take a look in the mirror of the Word and say, you know, there's some things he's probably angry about in my life. He says, we've been this way, still in verse 5, we've been this way a long time. Now, it's amazing what clarity is brought when we finally bring in the harvest to the sinful seeds we've sown. Isn't sin just so appealing as it's being offered you? Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot none of y'all ever battle with sin. Well, theoretically then. <laughs> theoretically, sin is at, at its most beautiful right before we take it. 
And then when, as I said earlier, the proverbial chickens come home to roost, all of a sudden we see things as they are. And so now Israel, whereas God couldn't get them to repent for hundreds of years, and I mean that in the sense of they wouldn't repent, so God says, I'm actually going to bring the, the intensity of, of trouble to your life, and I know you'll break under it. And when they broke, they said, we've been like this a long time. And they said, we don't want to be like this anymore. And they said, is it possible that even we can be saved? Well, let's press in further. Verse 6, when we're talking about surrendered confession, we don't have anything to bargain with. We cannot cover our obvious stains. Verse 6 is graphic. It's graphic. We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Now that reads Shakespearean in English translations. I want to tell you in the Hebrew, it's ugly. There's at least four metaphors employed there. The first is one of a leper. Our sin, Isaiah says, is like incurable leprosy. We're unclean, unclean. And then there's this reference to the, the polluted garment. In the King James, I was schooled on the King James, it was filthy rags. Scholars disagree, but forgive the delicacy of this. It refers to one of two things, what we might term a dirty diaper or a used feminine product. And that's our righteousness. That means on our own when we offer up, and this is a good word for all of you that are trying to earn favor with God, trying to do enough to please this great God, and just maybe if you can muster up enough good stuff, he'll, he'll see that you're a pretty good guy or a pretty good girl, and, 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 and then he'll have to just say, come on into my kingdom. The Bible says that in essence we are dying lepers, and the best that we can offer up to God would be as appealing to Him as if someone walked up and handed you an open, dirty diaper or the other element that I mentioned. We, we recoil at that. We say, no! And that's what God does when we try to earn favor with Him through our works. Amen. That's how holy He is. You say, Jeff, well, what hope is there? That's what they just asked in the previous verse. Can even we be saved? The answer is yes. The answer is absolutely because the one who was nothing but righteous, who always did what, that, what was righteous, who only had righteousness to offer up, came and lived this human pilgrimage and gave that righteous life on a cross 2,000 years ago, and that payment was anything but unacceptable to God. It was perfectly acceptable to God, and God said, I will accept the payment of my son on behalf of all you that believe on him. And that's why you don't have to bring your diapers and those rags. You don't have to bring your works. You come to Jesus broken and confessing and open and surrendered, and that's what God honors. It was a terrible thing for those ancient people to acknowledge that they were like a leaf, dry and withered before God, and because of their sin they were blown off course like a, a leaf in the wind. Verse number 7. We're guilty of being indifferent because I, I, the Bible is so comprehensive. Nobody gets off scot-free. Because most of you aren't murderers. You, you're not out living in overt sin. And do you know how easy it is for us to give ourselves a free pass? 
We've always got, so thank, you know, I mean, it's just it's so convenient. I have always got somebody worse to compare myself to. If I ever want to feel, you know, just really good about myself, all I got to do is find out that somebody is far worse specimen than me. I'll just go stand next to that guy for a while, watch him. Man, you're a pitiful sinner. Good night. You need to get your act together, man. What's wrong with you? <sighs> thank God I am not like this man. Remember that? Remember that from the New Testament? Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him. Well, when we look in the Scripture, nobody gets a free pass because it doesn't have to be these overt sins of commission. Look at verse 7. We're guilty of being indifferent. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. That is beautiful. When, when Isaiah is giving this priestly confession for the nation of Israel, at best, as he looks upon the nation, he just says, we are historically indifferent to you, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've been living in, in intentionally ignoring you, giving you lip service as the calendar passes and the Sabbath comes and it's time for sacrifice and feasting, but we live the rest of the time in absolute indifference to you. And forgive me for playing that role of a prophet of doom, but I think this needs to be spoken to the church today. Sundays are easy to go through the Christian motions. It's easy. We open the doors, we flip on the lights, we hit the right chord, and everybody becomes a worshiper. And that's not all that God's interested in. Look, I, I want all of that. There, there's substance and there's significance to coming and meeting together and worshiping, but there is this element where that's the only supposed encounter with God or intentionality towards God that happens all week long. Isaiah said, there's nobody that's calling on you. Nobody rouses himself to take hold of you. I love that. Rouse yourself. That's a type A phrase right there. It's a fine line because earlier we were told the significance and the, the, the blessing of waiting on God. But here's an element where we're, we're kind of exhorted to rouse ourselves up towards God. That means take some initiative, make some decisions, pursue surrender. It, it, it literally means that God makes Himself available. You can call unto Him in a day that He can be found, but if you don't want to call, and, and it's not important to you to, to know this God and live with this God and serve this God and worship this God. And by the way, this God's name is Jesus Christ our Lord. If that's not important to you, then the Lord may just simply pass by you and move to cast His pearls before people who want them. Does it make you unsaved necessarily? I'm not here to shame anybody, but I am saying, do we not see the potential to live an unsurrendered life? You're living for something. I'm living for something. I am giving myself to something every day, and so are you. And it is highly possible for each of us to live in a posture where we're not calling on Him, where we're not rousing ourselves up to connect and to touch Him and to meet with Him, but we are living in that treadmill that is moving us away from God. So God is calling to us, and He's summoning us, and He's saying, cross this threshold with me. It's the expression of that is somewhat stated in verse number 7 at the end. I, I just framed it up like this. We cannot bear to go on apart from you. Lord, you've hidden your face from us. Let that linger. I have been there before. 
It's the where are you God season. There's two ways to experience the where are you God season. One is because he is silent on purpose because he wants you to remember the last thing he said to you. Sometimes when you can't get a fresh word, it's because you haven't done anything with the last word. And God, as he calls us to be patient, he is patience. And he'll wait. But there are other times where um, he's hidden our face, his face from us because uh, we won't look him in the eye. It's not that he plays peekaboo with us, but he knows when we won't look him in the eye. And when we won't look him in the eye, he'll take it up a notch and he'll hide his face from us until we want more than anything to see his face and to look him in the eye. And that comes through confession. He says, you've made us to melt in the hand of our iniquities. Friends, I just, there's no way for me to intensify this enough to rise to the level of, of, of the idea behind these words. What am I trying to say? A surrendered heart, it's, it's, it's the threshold we're always crossing. We have to remain surrendered. That's why I'm not a big fan of asking people, when did you get saved? Because it allows them to say, hold on a minute. I'm going to walk back 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. This is where I met God. And it says nothing about, well, what's happened in the interim? And, and what do you see when you look him in the eye today? See, friends, he loves you. He's not a scowling, impossible to please deity. Just looking, just, I mean, some people grew up with the idea of God as he's just right on the edge of heaven saying, one more mistake. Come on. One more mistake. I cannot wait. Lightning bolt, Gabriel. Come on. Right here. Thank you. All right, one more. And, and you grew up with that kind of caricature of God that he's just, you better toe the line, little girl, or I'm going to bust you into oblivion. That's not it at all. He, he comes to us in love. But friends, you've done this with your kids and your grandkids. When you, as the parent, as the wiser one, determine it's time for a little eye-to-eye contact and the kids won't look away. How many times have you taken your kid's face, your child's face, and when they're turned away looking at whatever, you just put it right in front of you and say, I need your attention. And the Lord does that, not, not so he can ruin whatever it is we've got our mindset on. It's because he knows the safest and best place for us is making eye contact with him to see what he sees. Maybe even to see your own reflection in his countenance. So we cannot go on apart from you, Lord. I pray that that will increase, and I pray that, that there, it needs to start in the church. There needs to be a move in the church where the church says, not, not America, not the Republicans, not the Democrats, not the independents. I, I, help me, Jesus. Help me. Help me. Seriously. Help me. Whew, almost went there. But the church needs to say, we can't do this without you. We don't want to. We don't want to do this without you. We don't want to have good services if you're not there, Lord. You can have a good service without God. Did you know that? You can have a meaningful one or a lasting one, but you can have one that rises to the checklist of good. You can do that without God. All you need is a, a couple of X, Y, and Z, some skilled people, a good routine, a good plan, a couple of pops here and there, and you can have a good service that will satisfy just about 80% of churchgoers. 
But for the remnant that want to come and meet with God, you can't do that without Him. That's the hunger that the American church needs. The, the American church doesn't really need more spice. <laughs> we need more substance. And I, I, I don't ever want to get to a point, and I, I just thank the Lord. I'm going to tell you something. If you're, if you're, this is not a commercial. It's just me bearing my heart. We don't execute on this all the time here at New Bridge. We're, we're just getting out of the gate. But I can tell you the heartbeat of, of your two lead pastors and those that serve with us is that we would do this right. And we are going to aim for excellence. And if you come in with a critical spirit and a checklist, you probably won't last long here because you won't be giving us grace to, to work out some of the kinks. But if you'll wait with us on the Lord, I can tell you we want to see his face. And we want him to move. And we don't want to do this without him. I know what time it is, so let me get down to the last set of verses. And this is it. That surrendered confession, that surrendered de desire, but eventually you got to come out of your confession closet and you got to walk it. And so the threshold of surrendered pathways. Verse 8, we trust his moving hand. I love this. It's a rare glimpse in the Old Testament. And he says, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. You don't see God referred to as Father much in the Old Testament. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. I love this confession primarily, not only because it's theologically true and uh, emblematically rich, but it's in the context of, of them having just gotten really spanked by the Lord. And there's something about the character of God that even when He spanks His own children and we confess that we had it coming... And, and we, we really, above all things, in the heart of hearts, want to glorify His name, and we want everybody to know how good He is. When, when He spanks us and it hurts, and we're reaping what we sowed, we're still able to say, but I, I know one thing, you're still my daddy. You're still my Abba. And Lord, I also know that you're, you're immeasurably creative and skilled, and you're working your purposes, and so I see you as the potter, and you're, you're reframing me as a vessel. You're reframing us as a vessel. We are the clay, and Lord, thank you that you haven't thrown us to the wayside. Thank you that you're spinning your wheel. You're adding water in the hard places. You're putting pressure where it needs to be pressed, and that you're creating something good. You've heard it said before that when in this metaphor of clay and the potter, you've probably heard it said that, that God forms... Sin deforms, God reforms. Sin comes against God's original design, but God doesn't give up. He just takes that marred clay and He says, I'll make a new vessel out of it. Jeremiah taught us that in his prophecy. So there's hope for everybody. Say, Jeff, I've really messed up. God had His hand on me, but I, I, I crumbled. I, I'm a marred vessel. I'm a, clay that, a piece of clay that fell apart and didn't hold its shape. Well, I just want to tell you something. The potter is the father. He's a good father. He does not throw his kids away. He will come at you, not to destroy you, but to develop you, to bring you to that place where you take the, original, the intentional shape that he has for you. So we're trusting his moving hand. Can I bring it home to you real, just quickly? What's his hand feel like on your life right now? For some of you, it's very tender. You needed a tender touch. Others of you, you're sensing the firm grip because you've been running a little bit. 
Others of you may feel like he's taken his hand off of you. Maybe you feel like that he's not moving at all. Well, maybe he's watching you to see if the vessel he's made will hold its shape. He's just got his eye on you. There are times where I don't sense the, the, the touch of God's hand on me, but you'd be hard-pressed to convince me that I've ever been outside of his vision and him watching me. Why? Because in his omniscience and in his agape love, those two, few, few, two things fueled together, fused together, his love motivates him as a good father to always keep his eye on his children. And so he's watching you. Verse number nine, we stand in his unbreakable covenant. Covenant. I love this. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. And remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. I just like it because there seems to be, I mean, he's just said, you're our father. That speaks of just, you know, the, the relationship there. And now he's just holding God to the covenant. Not that you have to, but I find in Scripture that you can. You're going to find God's people all throughout Scripture. And it's just funny the way they say it, but they're saying, uh, don't forget you made a covenant with us. Don't forget. Don't forget what you said to Abraham. Don't forget what you said to Isaac and Jacob. Don't forget what you promised David. When we think of the covenants that run through the Hebrews unto the Christian, it's amazing. You've got the Abrahamic covenant. You've got the Mosaic covenant. You've got the Davidic covenant. You've got the new covenant. And what, 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 what is all this? It's really just God saying in different ways, I'm good and I'm going to keep my promise to my people. Say, but Jeff, what if we don't keep our promise? What do you mean, what if? Are you kidding me? We, we haven't kept our promise. We don't keep our promises. That's why he had to make it a unilateral covenant and pay the price for the covenant to be put in full effect. Jesus paid it. That sealed it. We receive it. Hey, exhale a little bit. If it depends on you, you're already done. And so, so they say, Lord, don't be mad at us forever. Don't be so terribly angry. I like that. Be not so terribly angry. Remember not iniquity forever. And then please look. We're your people. Verse 10 and 11. We mourn the fallout from our failures. This is just a little bit more of the same. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. That was their fault. Zion has become a wilderness. That was their fault. Jerusalem, a desolation. 100% their fault. Our holy and beautiful house, that's a reference to the temple, where our fathers praised you, it's been burned by fire, totally their fault. And all our pleasant places have become ruins, absolutely their fault. All they're describing is, look what we have done with our sin. And listen, there, is, there are very few things more challenging than to have to stare down the aftermath of your failures and just stay where you're supposed to be and say, God, how will you help? It's so easy to say, I have made a mess of it. I made a mess of my home. I made a mess of my marriage. I made a mess of my finances. I made a mess of my ministry. I made a mess of my integrity. I made a mess of this. I made a mess of this. I made a mess of this. And it is so common for a person that professes Christ to have to smell the fumes and the, the smoke going up from the burned out rubble of their failure. And for that person to say, it'll never be right again. And they can walk away, but not Israel, not Isaiah, not here. In the midst of all of the stuff they had reaped because of their sin, they're, they're just offering it up to the Lord. They're saying, Lord, we see the effects of our wrongdoing. And though verse 12 doesn't ring with confidence, Listen to it. 
We surrender in hope of reversal. In the aftermath of their ruining, here's what the question is. Two questions. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? This is what they're saying. God, we've done all of this. But we are surrendering. We will not be who we have been. You have brought us low. You have shown us our iniquity. We see it all around us. But we have only two questions of you. Father, will you withhold yourself now at this hour? The Hebrew word translated here in the ESV, restrained, indicates a state of being unmoved. They're saying, Lord, in this, our greatest hour of national need, we know who you are. It carries the air of, surely you're not going to stand still on us right now. Surely you're not unmoved. Surely you won't hold back your undeserved goodness. It is a hesitant expectation of the grace of God. They are overwhelmed by the reality of their failure and sin, but they are more aware of the fact that our God is our Father. He's merciful, compassionate, and gracious. And Lord, I believe we can count on you to do something. And he did. And he did. The captivity ran its course. The exiles came home. They were never, the Jews to this day, have never been polytheistic, meaning they have never bowed down to other pagan gods since that time period. God broke them of their idolatry. Of course, our prayer is that all of the Hebrews will turn to Jesus, Yeshua, as Messiah and King. But for this chapter of their history, they were broken by the Lord, and they found God compassionate, merciful, and gracious. I'll close with this. That is how you and I will find him on the other side of surrender.